Welcome everyone to another episode of Divinity Connecting the Dots. I am your host, Navi Jaswal, and today I'm talking to Samantha Derrick, the founder and executive director of Plant Futures Initiative, which is taking university campuses by storm in North America and elsewhere in the world. With her mission to bring a plant-forward consciousness to education and offer vital industry connect, Samantha has a vision for the future of food, food systems, and veganism and plant-based lifestyle and diet like no one else. And in doing so, she and her team are connecting the dots for students, faculty, educators, industry leaders, and indeed for anyone touched, moved, and inspired by their relentless efforts. I am so excited to welcome you to the show, um, dear Sam. And let me actually bring you on to the stage just now. Hi there. Hi, Navi. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much for being on the show with us. Thank you so much for, for having me. I'm excited to be here. You are most welcome, Samantha. So let me start with asking a question I ask of all of my guests. Were you always vegan? Were you raised vegan? Did you eat differently? How did the journey look for you? Yeah, I was not raised vegan. I was not always vegan, but I did become vegan pretty early on in life. I um, was 12 years old, and that was really the turning point, I'd say, of my entire life when everything changed. It was kind of my wake-up call when I realized what was happening in food systems and animal agriculture. So what happened, I um, was actually reading my local newspaper, and there was an article about PETA and some advocates who were doing work with PETA. And I was curious. I had never heard of PETA. So I went online, looked up their website, and one of the first things I saw was the video that a lot of people are familiar with. I think it's called Meet Your Meat. And Mm -hmm. it was undercover footage of slaughterhouses. So I saw it and I couldn't even get through 30 seconds of the video. I mean, I was stunned. I was shocked. It was depressing, horrible to look at. And I had no idea that this was happening in food systems. um, And especially the food that I was eating was coming from these places. So I was very disturbed. I just kind of froze. I was shocked. And I I decided in that moment, I'm never, ever going to support this industry again. Like that was it for me. Like I could not eat animals after, after watching that. So I remember that night I went to my parents and I was crying and they were like, what happened? And I told them what I had seen and I just couldn't believe it. And I told them I'm never going to eat animals again. So um, thankfully, my parents were extremely supportive. And I think that was a big part of my journey. They, of course, were making all of my meals at that age. Um, They immediately started helping me research um, vegan plant-based options, the meals that I could eat. And and right away, they knew that it was a healthy way of eating as long as I was eating a balanced diet and eating everything I needed to. So they were really a big part of my journey with me. And together, we kind of all, all went into this vegan journey. I was the first one to become fully vegan in my family. And eventually my family adapted too, because they started eating a lot of the meals that I was eating and they started liking my food even better. And they started learning about all of the health benefits. So really we, our whole family kind of went on this journey together. And around that same time, I watched An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. And that was also my first exposure learning um, about climate change and what was happening. So I started connecting the dots between what I was eating, animal welfare, animal suffering, um, climate change. And then I started learning about public health and how the diets um, that that people were eating in the U.S. and especially in my community coming from a Mexican-American background, I realized that a lot of the chronic disease in these communities was stemming from the diets and what we were eating, very animal-centric, processed um, Western diets. So it just all made sense. It was just so clear to me that plant-based diets, plant-based nutrition was a way to address all of these issues. And I just got so excited about plant-based nutrition and it really just became my whole life. I started reading all the documentaries and the books, and then that really set the path for my trajectory and all the way to today to what I'm doing now. But that was really the turning point for me when I was 12 years old. Wow, what a, what a revelation, you know, for a 12-year-old to receive um... And, and it's, it's just amazing that your family were so supportive um, and, and they themselves adapted and they could see, uh, you know, how this was a better, healthier way to eat for their own health and, and also for the planet. Um, you know, in, in a previous conversation, you've mentioned another member of your family that 
did have a lot of you know impact on how how you look at animals and how you chose to uh, you know start looking at animals at that young age. Do you want to talk a little bit about Oreo and and his contribution in in your journey? Absolutely, yeah. So Oreo um, was my dog growing up. Uh, he's not with us anymore today, but he is, even though he looks like a Chihuahua, he's actually half Jack Russell, half Rat Terrier. Um, he was the only dog I've, I've ever had or ever lived with. So he was just, he had such a personality. He was so hyper and hilarious. And ever, we traveled a lot with Oreo. We brought him everywhere we went. I mean, he was really a part of the family with us growing up. I mean, Oreo had such a profound impact on my life. And around that same time, when I saw that, um, that footage of how we were treating animals and food systems, I couldn't look at Oreo and, and decide that I loved Oreo, but that I couldn't, that I could harm other animals through my diet. I mean, it just didn't, the cognitive dissonance really sunk in. And, um, he, I would say he was a big part of that decision because I knew how much I loved Oreo and I knew he had a personality. I knew he had feelings. I knew, I mean, I just had this like almost spiritual connection with Oreo and I, I could not, um, let myself harm other animals and through my diet, but say that I loved animals. I mean, it was, it just made sense. And I really do um, thank Oreo for, for being part of that journey and part of the reason that I shifted. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and there was just so much to be said about um, how we love certain animals and what we consider in our culture, companion animals. And then, and, you know, how we treat animals where we, we think ought to be part of our menu. Um, and it obviously changes from culture to culture, you know, and we're pretty quick to judge other cultures as well, you know, where certain animals we think are companion animals are, you know, end up on their plates and, and so on. So it does feel like a pretty backwards kind of world. You know, and I remember one of my interviews, I asked someone um, if aliens were to watch, you know, humans eat and how we treat animals, you know, wouldn't they wonder as to why we treat companion animals, farmed animals and, and some others, you know, wild, wild animals differently? And why have we created these categories? And it's amazing at such a young age, you were able to connect those dots um, and, and see there is no difference between Oreo and, you know, a pig or a cow or any other or chickens and, and fish. Um, so you've spoken about how supportive your family were. Um, what about school? Did you experience any challenges? School was very challenging, especially at that age. I was in middle school and especially where I grew up. I was in Florida and I grew up in a, um, I would say, pretty conservative, smaller town. So I don't think, I mean, at the time, I don't even think the word vegan was ever used or was rarely used. So, I mean, I hadn't even heard that word before. So I started researching, well, what is vegan? What does that mean? And I remember going to restaurants, going to school, saying I was vegan, and um, most people didn't know what it was. And then when I tried to explain myself, I would say in general, people were not very supportive or understanding. They were like, but but why? I don't understand. We're, we're meant to eat meat. We're supposed to eat meat. I mean, that's, of course, how we're conditioned to think growing up. And I think um, just given where I was um, in Florida at that point in life um, in a pretty politically conservative place, it was very challenging going out to eat. So a lot of um, a lot of my meals were at home. There weren't really many options for me when I went out to eat. That, of course, changed when I moved to Berkeley, California, um, when I went to, to undergrad there for school. And I mean, it was a total culture shock for me to suddenly have access to vegan food. And a lot of um, it was very common there. I met a lot of other vegans and um, people were much more understanding and accepting. Um, but even then, I mean, it's still in most places of the world, it's still not um, super, super widely accepted. I think the culture is finally changing, especially in the last five years. I've seen a noticeable shift, um, especially in our generation. But um, at the time, it wasn't easy. It was. It could be very isolating, very socially isolating. Um, a lot of kids, of course, were bullies in middle school and high school and like to make fun of me for being vegan. But I kind of just, I got used to it and I wasn't going to let that stop me from, from living the way that I wanted to live. Yeah, yeah. You know, taking a stand as um, different from mainstream as the one that you did at the age that you did um, does sort of flex your muscles and develop that resiliency and grit, you know, that you need for, 
the, the big task that you have cut out, you know, in, in front of you with Plant Futures Initiative. Um, and so, and definitely we're going to talk a lot more about that, but I wanted to sort of dig a little bit deeper into these challenges at school and how that might have sort of shaped your journey with wanting to bring this vegan consciousness to school, you know, to, to the youth. Um, and so, you know, and, and if you're comfortable, do you want to share with us like any particular, you know, case of, um, you know, bullying or, you know, a funny remark that somebody may have passed at school where you were like, you were, you know, you, you wanted to stand up for yourself or that you, you know, regardless of how you reacted to it, but something that has stayed with you and then stuck with you. Yeah, I think, um, at the time, I think there was just this misconception. People were constantly telling me that as a vegan, I would be weak and malnourished and that I couldn't be healthy. And it was it was funny because I was in so many sports in high school, middle school. I was very athletic. I played tennis. I played soccer. I did martial arts. When I got to college, I started running. And if anything, being vegan, I think, enhanced my athletic performance. I recovered faster. I started running faster. I got stronger. When I got to college, I started strength training. So um, I think part of it was a motivation proving to people like, oh, if you're going to say I'm weak, let me show you. I'm going to let me prove you wrong. Um, so if anything, I think I think that almost was a catalyst for me. I think when people tell me I can't do something or something is not possible. I try even harder to prove to them, no, in fact, I can. And this is even a healthier way of living. So it's funny because at no point did I ever feel unhealthy or malnourished. I actually remember there was a very um, distinct moment when the first time I told my doctor um, at when I was young that I had become vegan, I went with my parents and my doctor was so shocked and told my that I had to be extremely careful that there was a big chance I was going to start losing my hair and that I wouldn't grow, that I wouldn't get taller. <laughs> so my parents were just, I mean, they had done so much research. They were, they were like, no, we're, you're fine. Don't worry about it. And I ended up being, I think, the tallest in my class. I ended up, um, I grew at a normal rate of anything more <laughs> than normal. I, and um, always had long, healthy hair. I mean, everything that was told to me was just not true. I mean, and it, it's just, it's sad that there is so much information and so many people still are still say stuff like that. And it scares people away. And it's sad because when you look at the science and the research, it's just not the case. I mean, the science doesn't lie. Um, but but it is unfortunate, even in the medical field, um, even amongst people who are educated, there's still so much misinformation and, and misconceptions around veganism, not being able to be healthy, or strong or grow tall. I mean, it's just not true. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, uh, Sam, because, you know, a lot of our viewers are transitioning vegans. Uh, many of them, you know, are parents and they have children and uh, there there are questions, you know, with with parents who are wanting to transition to eat this way, if they can also switch their kids to an entirely vegan diet. And, and you're absolutely right with uh, the medical fraternity, with the educator fraternity out there, uh, all this usual support resources in the circle of care that, you know, children have, um, veganism and whole food plant-based isn't necessarily top of mind. And, and there's a lot of misinformation. And to know that you were tallest in class, you participated in so many, you know, uh, sports related activities and, and you have your beautiful, gorgeous hair. Um, and, you know, th this this is your role modeling for a lot of people out there, um, you know, who have concerns about raising, uh, you know, young people in their house as vegan. Um, so, so thank you so much for sharing that. This is very useful information. Well, I, I wanted to talk to you about your ancestry. You mentioned you're Mexican-American and, uh, you know, as much as everybody loves Mexican food, we know that there's, um, you know, heavy usage of dairy and also meat um, that has, you know, happened in, uh, in, in this, you know, culture's cuisine. Um, do you want to talk to us a little bit around, um, you know, the history of how that might have come to be and, and were there any beliefs from the Mexican part of your heritage, which you specifically had to challenge um, and, and to think differently about Mexican food? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think this journey veganism very deeply ties into my Mexican heritage and Mexican identity because it it changed a lot of um, a lot of what I was eating. Of course, was was Mexican. My mom grew up making a lot of Mexican food, and like you said, it's very dairy heavy. It's very meat heavy. So at first, when I made this shift, I did kind of for a moment, I felt like I was going to lose parts of my tradition and parts of my culture because I was familiar with Mexican food that was very animal product heavy. That was what I grew up with because that is the Western American diet. Um, Western and Mexican American diet is very animal centric. It's very processed, um, but it is actually not at all reflective of what the native Mexican diet is like. And at the time I didn't know that. So I started researching more about um, just the history of Mexican food and and where um, a lot of the staples that originated in the Mexican diet, where it came from and how the culture changed, starting from colonization to the westernization of the Mexican diet with the imports of American food. So I actually ended up writing a whole paper on this in grad school on the history of the Mexican diet and that it is actually, in fact, very plant-based, largely plant-based, the native diet. Um, that is mostly what Mexicans were eating before colonization, um, a lot of plant-based foods. And even to today, if you, you go to Mexico, there are these huge markets, mercados full of fresh produce, um, legumes are a big part of diet, fruits, uh, vegetables. And um, at the time, I didn't know that. But the more I started researching, I actually got fascinated to learn that um, that plant-based was a huge part of Mexico's I mean, maybe not 100% vegan, but largely, largely plant-based, very close to vegan. I mean, meat was very uncommon, maybe sometimes once a month, depending on the region of Mexico that you lived in. It was more of a specialty Mm -hmm. item. Um, But then when the Spanish got to Mexico, they introduced way higher amounts of animal products, and especially dairy became a big part of the diet that didn't exist before. And over time, um, you, and then you go all the way to the westernization of the food system when the U.S. started importing and the food system got all industrial, they started importing a lot of American food here. You see how the rates of chronic disease go up and up and up over time as you introduce more animal products into the diet, yeah. um, sugar, of course, processed foods. And um, I, it's interesting now because there's this new generation and way of thinking in Mexico that is about reclaiming your health through um, reclaiming old ways of eating. So a lot of the new generation in Mexico is starting to eat more plant-based, are realizing that this is um, can be transformative for their health, for the health of their communities, and for the health of the Mexican community and Mexican-American communities. Right now, they suffer with some of the highest rates of chronic disease in the world. I mean, Mexico is one of the unhealthiest countries right now because of what's happened in the diet. Mexican-American communities in the U.S. also suffer a lot from chronic disease, Um, but that there is this new awareness and understanding that diet can be a huge lever for transforming health and especially plant-based eating. So now in Mexico, where I'm living now, I am just fascinated by the amount of plant-based options that there are. There are plant-based restaurants, cafes, supermarkets everywhere. I mean, more than even in California. And this has been pretty recent to this shift. Um, And a lot of the food is actually culturally... Um, food that is familiar to the culture, enchiladas, tamales, chilaquiles, but vegan versions of them. So they'll make them with vegan cheese or vegan alternatives. So I kind of call it a mix of native food with a modern twist. Of course, it's not going to be exactly what native populations are eating, but it's similar. Um, and they're using new products that are coming out to make it. And it's just fascinating. It's delicious. It's culturally relevant. I mean, you're not going to see burgers everywhere because that's not what people here are used to eating. And I, and I love that it's food that people are already familiar with, so that you're not feeling like you're missing part of your culture, part of your tradition. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's been an awesome journey because I can eat, I can share meals with my family, and I don't feel like I'm losing out on the tradition or the culture or the history of Mexico. If anything, I feel closer to my history, closer to my culture, because I have a much deeper understanding of food, what has happened to their food system, and especially knowing that plant plant-based was a huge part of Mexico's history, a plant-centric diet. So I actually feel closer to my culture than I ever have in my life now that I'm, I'm closer to um, closer to understanding exactly what has happened in the history of Mexico. I mean, I'm still learning a lot about the food system. They have a very fascinating history hmm. here, agriculture, farming. I still have a lot left to learn, but from what I have started to learn, it's uh, fascinating that Plant, a plant-centric food system is, is such a big part of, of their history and their culture here. And, and the new generation is seeing that as well, which is exciting. Yeah, it's super exciting, you know, to hear this, that somehow 
the plant-based consciousness has not just let, you know, just stayed at the modern definition of veganism, which again, dare I say is pretty Eurocentric, which is all centered around animals, which obviously, you know, the, the ethical definition of uh, veganism is. However, with communities of color, with, you know, persons, uh, you know, tracing their heritage and ancestry in the global South, like yourself, I do as well, you know, with South Asian um, heritage, it's, it's just so amazing that there are more and more layers that go beyond. And, and then you think about colonialism, you start think, peeling back those layers and you start to understand, well, what was this 400 years ago? What was this a thousand years ago? And, and then you start discovering, you know, how the design of our food systems is just so artificial and, and so consumed with, um, you know, and, and riddled with the history of invasion and war and conflict and, and all of that violence and toxicity. And, and no wonder there's a lot of speciesism that has, um, as a result, being embedded uh, in, in the way how indigenous cultures, you know, used to eat. Um, so, so tell me this, and you know, I'm very curious because um, in India, you know, you've got a very um, it's it's very clear definition of this is Western diet and and this is Indian diet, you know, and then people would be like, oh, this is Indian vegetarian, and they will include um, dairy in it. Um, but then with a more vegan twist of, you know, using vegan milks and, and vegan cheeses and so on, so that that palate can be satisfied. But then there's this rising consciousness of, well, even dairy wasn't included in the way our ancestors used to eat. So then people are going back and re-indigenizing their plates and, and you know, trying to revive some of the old seeds and some of the old plants and some of the old recipes, um, which they believe were consumed in that part of the world. Do you see that differentiation starting to occur in Mexico as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, um, a lot of the native staples, a lot of the native crops that people ate here, including wheat lagoch is one example. It's the um, fungus that grows on the maize, or it's part of the maize, and it's this kernel that the indigenous populations ate. And there are restaurants here that you can go to that serve these native recipes, indigenous recipes, and they are just delicious. The most incredible flavors, the most amazing food I've had in my life. They cook it um, the way the native populations cooked it, the same style. And most of these foods and at, at these restaurants that serve more native plates are vegan or plant-based. I mean, there aren't dairy in them because that dairy was not part of the diet at the time yes. until the Spanish arrived and brought dairy into the country. Um, the native populations were not not eating this. So you can actually go to many, many restaurants in Mexico that serve this food and kind of by default, it is vegan, which is amazing. And then of course they have the specialty vegan restaurants as well, in addition to that, but it is so accessible and so easy to find here. And one piece of information that I actually find super interesting too, is um, before the Spanish arrived, the Aztecs actually had a much longer lifespan. And once the Spanish arrived and introduced dairy, introduced a lot of um, these foods that are in the Mexican diet, now you see their lifespan start to decrease and chronic disease go up. So you, it just goes to show like how powerful a plant-based diet was um, for their health and for the health of communities and the effect that it has had since then until today and just seeing how much the population right now is suffering with chronic disease um, because of what we're eating. And, and I think a lot of people aren't making the connection to diet and what happened with colonization and what happened with westernization. I think there is a growing awareness, but there's still a long ways to go around um, making that connection and really seeing that plant-based eating can be so transformative for the health of the entire country and populations here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and making that connection with the epigenetic impact of colonialism is just so incredibly important. And it's, it's neither talked of nor researched, you know? And, yeah. and uh, so with this, you know, I, I would love to move over to what you're doing at this point in time and, you know, what you did at Berkeley, you briefly mentioned uh, your undergrad, but I wanna learn more. Um, so, so Florida, and there were some challenges and then you moved to California, culture shock in a very positive way because, you know, Berkeley um, is, is very plant forward and, 
So, so share with us about, you know, uh, why did you move there? What was, what were you majoring in, you know, for your studies? Um, and how did you sow the seeds of um, what you're doing at this point in time? Yeah, absolutely. So California was always a dream for me. I had never been to California growing up. I grew up in Florida, but I had heard so much about California, about the West Coast, the culture, the people. I knew there were a lot of vegans and vegetarians there. I had just heard so much about it. And it was always my dream um, since I was young to move to California to end up in California because it just sounded like the place for me and I, I somewhere where I could fit in and people would understand me. And um, I so from from a pretty young age, it was always my dream to go to Berkeley. I had just, I had set my mind to it. I was so determined to find a way to get to Berkeley. So I remember in high school, I worked so hard. I studied so much. I was just, it was just my dream. I was doing everything I could to, to get to Berkeley. So thankfully the work, the hard work paid off. I remember the day I got accepted to Berkeley. I was just crying. I was so happy. And I actually had not ever even seen the campus. I just decided I was going, I'm going. I, I knew I was going to love it. I showed up to Berkeley for school, had never seen it before, but I moved, I, I see, saw it for the first time when I moved there and just immediately fell in love. I mean, Berkeley to this day is still one of my favorite places in the world. I just loved it. There's something just so different and almost like unconventional and weird about Berkeley. And that's why I love it. it it's just, um, it, it just has a very specific energy and the university, I had an amazing time as an undergrad. I really loved it. Um, being vegan was a big part of the draw for going there. Cause there is, of course, um, there are a lot of vegans in Berkeley. There are a lot of plant-based food businesses, companies. Um, it was just very accessible and, and easy to be vegan there, especially compared to the way I had grown up in Florida and the culture that I was in, in Florida. So for me, it was total culture shock. I loved it. But even then, um, even though there was vegan food accessible at the university, I wanted to find a way to just study plant-based diets. I knew I wanted to work in the plant-based sector. So, But as an undergrad, there wasn't anything really there wasn't a single major focus on food or food studies or food systems so the closest that i could get to that was environmental policy and mm -hmm. environmental economics so that's that ended up being my major i studied environmental economics and policy within the major i took a few food classes but they're really I, I didn't really get to dig in the way that i wish i could go or go as deep as i wanted to in food systems and um that ended up shaping my entire trajectory towards plant futures and building it today but at the time i was just happy to be in the environmental sector. I knew I wanted to do something related to environmental sustainability, ideally food, but because there wasn't much happening in food systems, I actually ended up um, working in wildlife conservation for a while. So I did some internships um, in Alaska. I went to India for a while, worked for a sustainable design organization after I graduated. Um, I worked in Hawaii for a little bit, um, doing wildlife conservation as well. I actually ended up moving to Mexico City to teach English for a while. I was also kind of in the travel mode of my life. I mean, I still sort of am, but I was just, I was very adventurous at the time. I just wanted to do a bunch of different things. I knew I loved animals. And um, I, so I ended up working also in clean tech for a while. So after I lived in Mexico City for teaching English, I wanted to work back in the environmental field. I was looking for pretty much the first environmental job I could find. I just wanted to do something in sustainability. So I ended up working in clean tech um, for four years almost in San Francisco, but I always knew deep down that I wanted to work for the plant-based sector to do something in food systems. I mean, that was always my draw, my passion from the day I was 12. It was really what defined a huge part of what had defined my life. Um, I really deeply identified with being vegan and I, that was always where I was pulled to. So um, eventually that led me to going back to Berkeley to study public health because I was so sure that in the public health program, um, there would be a lot more discussion around plant-based diets, animal agriculture, considering that animal agriculture and factory farming is one of the biggest public health issues we're facing in this country. I was so um, determined and, and I knew public health would be the right place where I could connect all of, all of those pieces, everything I loved. And I chose the nutrition track within the public health program. So I ended up going back to UC Berkeley for my master's, which I was really excited about. I loved Berkeley and I really wanted to go back to study there. So I went back and um, that's really where the journey of Plant Future started because I started the public health program and I realized that there was actually no discussion around plant-based diets. We weren't talking about animal agriculture. We weren't talking about factory farming. And I was pretty stunned in a public health program, especially Berkeley, one of the more progressive schools in the country you would think that there would be a lot more discussion around that and, and no. 
Um, so that's where, where it all started, but um, maybe I'll take a pause there. <laughs> that's kind of where it um, yeah. Yes, you know, thank you for this pause because, you know, it's, I'm stunned. I was almost hoping for you to say that I started this master's in public health program and I was so stoked that it was Berkeley because, you know, they were all over it with uh, animal agriculture and food systems and so on. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to let that sit with me for, for a minute. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so you're in here, you're enrolled in this program. It's a fantastic school. But it's obviously not, you know, sort of connecting the dots. And so how did you influence, if you could and if you did, um, you know, the curriculum to steer it towards what you wanted your education to be? It was a journey. Um, for one, I did everything I could to bring up this topic in my classes, especially my food classes and nutrition classes. I would always bring up plant-based eating, animal agriculture. I would try to integrate it into our group discussions. And very often when I would bring up vegan diets or plant-based diets, it was almost immediately dismissed either by a professor or by a classmate saying, well, is the Impossible Burger really much healthier than a regular burger? It was funny to me that veganism and plant-based diets always just cut categorized as the impossible burger and then the conversation would stop there well it's no it's so processed it's unhealthy and then anyway they would dismiss it and the conversation would move on when there are so many layers to veganism and plant-based eating and whole foods diets to me the, the fact that so many of my colleagues would just simplify it to the impossible burger diet dismiss it and move on from the conversation was just shocking when we have so much incredible science and evidence supporting whole foods plant-based diets plant-based eating as a lever for public health, for climate change, and just as I was just, it, it was disappointing to me. So I um, didn't let that stop me. I knew I wanted to find my niche and kind of my way to break through this program and really um, study what I loved, but I, I couldn't find it at first. I was really looking for it. Um, the turning point, I took edible education by Will Rosenzweig, Professor was Will Rosenzweig at UC Berkeley. He teaches at the business school. And um, I went to Will's office hours because I had to complete a project for his class. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do for my project. And he asked me, well, what do you like? And I said, I am very interested in plant-based food systems, plant-based nutrition. That's really my passion. But I'm really struggling to find something at Berkeley. I haven't really been able to do anything. So maybe I can um, do something with my project on this topic. And he said, he said, yeah, of course. He said, well, why don't you start something at Berkeley if it doesn't exist? And he kind of challenged me. And I, I like the challenge. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you're right. Maybe I should try to start something. I had no idea what that something would be or what it could look like. But it was exciting um, to, to think about potentially, even if it, at first I was like, well, maybe it can be a student group or a small kind of like seminar for students. I wasn't sure, but he actually suggested, he's like, well, why don't you just draft a syllabus for a class and think about what a class on this topic would look like. And that's when everything changed. I kind of, that was another one of those turning points in my life. I started, I got really excited at the, around the idea, um, started drafting a syllabus, a brainstorming. If I were to take a class on plant-based students at Berkeley, what would I want to learn? What would I need to know? Mm -hmm. um, so this was actually right around the time when the pandemic started. So my school suddenly took this huge shift. I remember that week getting an email from the university saying, we're going to go on Zoom for a week. Um, we'll be back on campus soon. So one week very quickly became two weeks, three weeks, and then it became the whole semester. And then at one point I realized we're not going back to campus anytime soon. So I actually ended up going back to Florida with my parents uh, for that summer during when the pandemic started. And I remember spending um, multiple days on the beach with the Plant Future syllabus, writing, journaling, thinking about it. I was going through so many different iterations. I would ask my parents for feedback. And then Will was mentoring me through the process too. So I would check in with Will weekly. I would talk um, through the ideas. He would give me suggestions. So I actually ended up going from just being a class project for that semester at Will, but the class ended, but then I actually continued it through the whole summer. It actually ended up being part of my summer internship 
was continuing to build this class. So I got really excited because it, it kind of went from a passion project to realizing this is something that we might actually be able to start at the university. So I got really excited. But even at that point, months into working on this, we still had no idea if the university was going to approve it. We we didn't know because it has to go through multiple layers of approval and bureaucracy. So um, finally, I think at the end of summer, um, Will and I had worked, he had given me a lot of feedback on the syllabus. We had gotten it to a point where it was ready to be submitted to the university. And we submit it and it took several weeks of emails and back and forth and finding the right people. That was the point when I realized just how uh, bureaucratic um, the university system is and also just a lot of the flaws in higher education and a lot just how slow they are to respond to a lot of things. And, and at that point, it was very clear that there was a lot of student interest in the topic because I had started to tell students and my peers what I was working on. And a lot of people were excited. And that was part of the reason I kept going. I'm like, oh, wow, there's there are more people besides me who are excited about this topic. So I really need to keep pushing. So I remember uh, the day that Will texted me telling me that it had been approved by the university. I was just in shock. I was so happy. I think I might have even cried. I was just overwhelmed because suddenly it was going to become a real thing. It wasn't just this idea that I had. It was something that was going to be offered for academic credit at the university. So, um, but that's really when the work begins. I mean, it ha I had already put so much work into starting it, but it was still just a syllabus on paper, but then it got approved and, and I, I realized, oh, wow, now we actually have to start the class and we have to prep for it. We have to get all the material ready. And and I was going to co-teach it with my professor too. So right. I was in my master's program still at the time and suddenly plant features went from, I, I say, I think it consumed about 90% of my time in my master's program. My classes, I, I just got so excited about it. And I was so much more excited about plant features than the classes I was in. <laughs> ended up just pouring my heart and soul into this project. And we ended up launching the class um, while I was still in my master's program. And that's really where it begins. I mean, there were multiple points throughout the journey, but I think launching it and just seeing it in real life and seeing how many students were excited about it was just so awesome and eye-opening for me too. Yeah, so you were a student and pretty quickly from a student, you became a teacher, you know, because you were really like, okay, this is, this is, these are the classes that I never, uh, you know, that I couldn't go to. And, and these are what's, what are really needed. And, and then there's clearly student interest. Um, wow. Th this is such an incredible time to be a student at Berkeley at this point, because you've created all of these possibilities for uh, the students and, and not just at Berkeley, because, um, uh, and, and, you know, I really would love for you to talk to, um, us more about how the Plant Future Futures Initiative, you know, got branded the way it is at this point. And while it's situated at Berkeley, but you have the remit and, and ability to go in and do campus outreach outside of the university as well, outside of Berkeley. So, so tell me, how does that work? And, and I'll also quickly in the meanwhile for our viewers, bring up the amazing um, team that you have so you can talk to us a little bit about the team as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when I was, uh, when this launched at Berkeley, it was just an academic course at UC Berkeley offered to the business school for UC Berkeley students. But what happened is when we launched the first class, and maybe just to give you a little bit context around the class and how it works, it was a, a two-part class. We had the Plant Futures Symposium, which we call the Introduction to Plant-Based Food Systems. And that's a two-day crash course on plant-based food systems. So that was offered for one unit of academic credit at the university. We opened it up to students from all majors, everything from undergrad, PhD students. And um, what we did for that first part of class is we invited a bunch of guest speakers from um, different parts of the plant-based sector to talk on a whole variety of topics in plant-based food systems. So everything from climate, nutrition, social equity, innovation, entrepreneurship, anything and everything happening in plant-based food systems at the time. We had a lot of amazing founders and CEOs the first year we had a really phenomenal lineup the first year that we ran the symposium and we ended up I think attracting around 500 people total the first time we ran the class and this was all during COVID so it was all virtual so we were able to run this virtual event we had 
um, this whole team of volunteers and students helping me run it virtually. I had never hosted an event in my life, especially not virtually. We had to get all the conference technologies up. So um, we had, dur during that process of marketing the symposium, I'm letting students on campus know that this was going to happen. There were so many UC Berkeley students excited. I think of the 500 people, we had around between two and 300 UC Berkeley students, but so many students from other campuses found out that this was happening. So I was getting daily emails, students from other campuses saying, hey, can we audit? Can we join the class? And we, I mean, part of our mission is to make this information accessible as widely as possible. We want students to learn about this. We want people to know what's happening plant-based food systems. And we want to get students excited to work for plant-based food companies. So of course, I, I wanted everyone who wanted to attend to be there. So we actually ended up opening it up um, to the public. And we had students from dozens of other universities join the symposium. It was so awesome. We ran the symposium. It was a super fun event. Um, a lot of amazing talks, very inspiring, exciting. Um, so many amazing feedback from students but that was just part one what in that process of planning the symposium we were trying to think of um, a more like what could a semester long class look like in addition to symposium this is just kind of the crash course here's everything happening um, but we wanted students to get to have the opportunity to develop more skills and, and applied learning experiences where they could really develop the skills that they needed to work for plant-based food companies so in that process of planning the symposium, we decided to plan for the Plant Features Challenge Lab, which is the second part of the course. And that's where students get to work directly with organizations and companies from the plant-based food sector on an innovation challenge that that company or organization is having um, with a mentor from that organization for an entire semester, 14 weeks. And then they present a deliverable to the organization or the company at the end of the semester. They work on multidisciplinary teams. So we had public health students working with business students, nutrition, data science, just an amazing mix of students very talented students. Um, we ran the challenge lab. We had a really awesome cohort the first year. We had Miyoko's, Calafia Farms, Tofurky, um, Blue Horizon. We had a lot of great organizations. And what yeah. was awesome is all the organizations and companies took the students' work and implemented it into their company. So it was really a win-win. The students were learning. They were developing skills. The companies were connecting to these amazing, talented students and receiving really valuable work from them. And we realized through that first class that we ran, this is the Challenge Lab, that we were building, not just giving students um, these applied learning experience in the companies, access to these students, but we were really building a talent pipeline. We were really connecting academia to the sector. And that's something that just doesn't exist right now. There are very few resources on campuses for students, including myself, who want to work in the plant-based sector. There just aren't resources. There aren't, there isn't support. If a lot of MBA students, there's a lot of resources for investment banking and finance, and that's where the funnel goes. But for students who want to work in food systems, there's nothing. And that's a problem because if we have if we have talented, smart students who want to work for these companies and there are really clear ways to get there, they're going to go for other jobs because yeah. it's, just, it's difficult. And that's an issue because for the issues that we have that we are facing and the challenges that we are facing in our food system right now, we need talented, smart people solving these challenges. I mean, there's some of the biggest challenges our world has ever faced in history and we need the right people um, taking on these challenges. So um, it, it's a huge problem. And we realized through that experience at Berkeley that there, there weren't resources at Berkeley. So that's why it started. But then when other students were reaching out from other campuses asking, can we audit? Can we join the class? We realized this is actually a gap everywhere. I mean, this just doesn't yeah. exist on any campus, very few resources. So that was really the catalyst. That was that eye-opening moment we realized this this can exist in on other campuses and it should exist because it, it doesn't. So then around that time, I was getting close to graduating and Will talked to me and he said, um, he asked me, he said, Sam, how would you feel about starting a 501c3, an educational nonprofit, the Plant Futures yeah. Initiative, so that we can start this program on other campuses? So that's where the story for the nonprofit begins. So I graduated and I said, of course, I mean, Plant Futures was my life at that point, I had invested my so much time. Um, and I was just so excited and to have an opportunity to keep growing on this, to keep working on the project, to keep um, follow that entrepreneurial journey that I had started. I, I feel like I was always an entrepreneur at heart. I love just kind of creating things and kind of taking an unconventional path and my own way of doing things. So 
I got so excited because at the time I, I didn't know what I was going to do after graduating. I was still figuring it out. And this is just the perfect trajectory to keep working on something that I loved and that I was so excited about. So at that point, I graduated and we started the 501c3 and we started fundraising. Now I have a whole team that works with me and the nonprofit has grown um, quite a bit since then. And I was very fortunate. My team is amazing. Um, Brittany and Nina on the right, I actually met when I was a student at UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate. Um, they were also very excited about plant-based food systems, um, very talented, smart, and they were just an amazing and and a very important part of the journey with me. They helped me with running the class, launching it that first semester. And then Cynthia, um, what I met after I graduated, Will introduced me to Cynthia, um, and she really helped me with getting the 501c3 off the ground, getting it up and running. And um, they all work with me now. We have even a bigger team now, but they are my co-founders in this journey. They really um, helped me get it off the ground along with Will, my um, advisor and my mentor. Yeah. What an incredible journey, you know, from just a seed of an idea, you know, for all of these different classes that you wish that you could have audited and studied and and all of that. And and to actually going ahead and creating an entire curriculum and now blossoming that into a 501c3 and, and reaching out. So talk to us pretty quickly, you know, about the guiding values and then the framework. And and I have that up um, for our viewers as well. Yeah, absolutely. So our our vision and our mission is, is to accelerate the transition to plant-centric food systems by equipping the next generation of food systems leaders. But our um, core values and framework is around multidisciplinary education and, and systems thinking and acknowledging that we need students from all different backgrounds, academic experience, academic disciplines, lived experiences to solve these challenges. These challenges should not and are not siloed into one discipline. I think oftentimes in academia, we are very siloed into our bubbles. Um, I was in the public health program. I was only ever exposed to public health classes, to public health students, same with the business students and the MBA students. So Part of our guiding kind of framework and way of designing the program is to break those silos. We call it silo busting and to really put students, um, put them together on teams of students with from other programs, um, other ways of thinking, thinking that they haven't been exposed to before. Mm -hmm. So we design the program and the challenges and the companies that we work with so that they're multidisciplinary in nature. So all of the challenges we work with all the companies, we work with them to scope these challenges and these ideas to make sure um, that in addition to often there's a business component, even if you're thinking of go to market strategy for a new product or messaging, how do we message this new product? We also want them to be thinking about the role of nutrition, the role of climate. Um, how do they, all of these ideas and all these challenges intersect with each other? And how do we get a team of students from different disciplines to solve these challenges? Because that is much more reflective of the real world and what's happening. Yeah. In the real world, you're not just going to work with all public health students or all MBA students. You're going to work with people and solve challenges that are very complex and, and nuanced too. So we designed the program that way to make sure that in every challenge, every project, but also our guest speakers, our workshops, our symposium, that we're talking about um, all of these issues, climate, animal welfare, public health, um, and that in those, um, within those issues and within those challenges, we're using a guiding framework that includes ethical leadership, systems thinking to guide their way of thinking. Um, we want them to be thinking about um, ethics and all of these challenges. There are a lot of ethical dilemmas, even within the plant-based sector, when it comes to where we're sourcing ingredients from, the type of um, labor that goes into it, the role of farmers in these food systems. So we want students thinking about that. And we really present the information to them. Our, our role at Plant Futures is to be kind of the, um, the educators. We want to give the information. We want to provide the platform where they can have discussions and think critically. But we always leave it up to the students to make decisions and inform decisions for themselves and decide where they stand on these issues. And we've had so many fascinating discussions um, and panels and even debates in our classes and our students all think so differently and have very different stances on these issues, which I think is awesome. And that's what we want. We want to create that environment where students are thinking critically and we don't want everyone to be thinking the same way. And we're not going to tell them how to think, but we're going to give them information and let them make informed decisions for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and, and that's the role of that 
platform, you know, as you've envisioned, is, is basically just offer them, well, this is what the state of health is, this is what the state of the planet is, this is what the state of the food systems is, and, and then work on real life challenges in multidisciplinary teams, because that's exactly how the world of, you know, well, when you when you get a job, this is how it's going to work. You know, you won't only work with supply chain people, <laughs> you know, you'll have a a multifunctional uh, team or, you know, uh, with marketing and packaging and, and all of those people. So, so tell me, how does the plant futures ecosystem really work? You know, so um, you've mentioned the two steps that you organize the, the uh, symposium, and then you had the challenge lab, and you've spoken about the challenge lab. Uh, I have it up, you know, for the viewers as well to have a look at. Uh, what that really means, you know, you've conducted uh, the Harvard Radcliffe workshop. I think that's slightly different, um, Samantha, from the Challenge Lab. Uh, uh, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that as well. But I really quickly want to go over to the ecosystem and just understand how does this work? How do you put people together? Yeah, absolutely. So the two core parts of Plant Futures are the curriculum, which is a symposium and challenge lab that I spoke to, and what I call the movement. We're really building a student-led movement on different campuses. So the way we've done that is we've been starting student chapters on different campuses. So we have Plant Futures chapters on close to 30 campuses, different parts of the world right now. And what we're doing through the student chapter network is we're really empowering and equipping students to be um, plant-based food leaders on their campuses or really starting and initiating the plant-based food community on campuses because they don't exist in many places. A lot of the students are experiencing what I experienced in high school where they feel very isolated. They're not finding the right support or community that they need. So we're really helping to start those communities and activate um, students to be leaders on their campuses. So we have done everything from supporting them with running their own events on campuses, inviting speakers, hosting potlucks, um, collect, con uh, connecting to their local community, organizations to local farms. There's been a whole variety of events that have happened through the chapter network, but um, more than anything, we want to connect them to others, to other leaders. We want to connect them to faculty on campuses. So oftentimes we'll identify faculty members who are doing work or research in this area on um, plant-based food systems. So Harvard is the perfect example. The students are just amazing at Harvard. They started a chapter. Sparsha Saha at Harvard is their faculty sponsor. And um, the students were very excited about Plant Futures. They've done a lot of amazing work through the chapter. We were able to host the Harvard Radcliffe workshop a few months ago. And um, we, through that movement, we're connecting students not only to their campuses, but across universities. So we are connecting students through virtual events, um, our symposium. We're going to be inviting some of our students from different chapters to be there in January. And we really want to really give them the resources, the tools that they need to be food systems leaders um, to lead the next generation of food systems, even in the case when they don't have access to our curriculum, we want to be able to give them access to other resources that we have, it would, especially our network. I mean, a lot of the companies, the professional partners that we have worked with are offering jobs and internships and they want to find the right students. So we connect yeah. students to job opportunities. So really creating this whole ecosystem, which you see right there, includes the student chapters on the left, our professional network on the right, which is the companies and professional partners that we work with. And in the middle, you see our programming, which is Symposium Challenge Lab and Webinars, and we connect this ecosystem through our programming, um, through our events, and with the resources that we have. So we're building this globally. Right now, we're mostly based in the U.S., but we've just started to branch internationally, and we have some exciting plans to expand globally next year, which we're really looking forward to. Yeah. Give us a flavor of the different types of countries, like the non-North American countries that your chapters might be in, you know, so the viewers know. Yeah. So right now we have um, a chapter in Europe. We have one in Brazil, um, one in British Columbia, I believe, as well in Canada. But we I'm personally most excited about Latin America just because that's where I'm located right now. Yeah. And there is just a huge opportunity, especially in Mexico and Latin America, because of what I was talking about earlier, this huge um, just emergence and rapidly expanding plant-based sector in Mexico. There's just so much excitement and energy around plant-based eating in Mexico right now, especially in the younger generations. And similar to the U.S., there just aren't any resources on campuses in Mexico for students who want to work for these companies and these organizations. So I am personally um, going to be 
expanding the program to Mexico next year. I'm starting to talk to some universities and some companies here. So um, that's where I, I think that'll be kind of our phase one. We've started thinking about Asia. There's a huge opportunity in Asia as well. Europe, of course, there's a, a ton happening there. I think ideally our longer term vision in the next few years would to have regional parts or regional chapters all over the world have maybe a director of Latin America, director of Asia yeah. and Europe. Um, kind of coordinating that part of the world. And that is our, our longer term vision. Oh, gosh, yes. You know, you've got to have India on the map, too. It's the next, yes. you know, talent exporting country. And then, you know, it's, I can, I can tell you this, that when I graduated business school, in, you know, 2004, there was absolutely none of this consciousness, you know, that was brought to us uh, in, in the business school. And it was uh, you're right. You know, there's this whole employer branding investment that happens in processed food and beverage companies, especially with animal centric supply chains, do such a terrific job of marketing themselves and, you know, um, almost sort of luring, uh, you know, talented students to think that they've arrived if they work for so and so and and they've really made it in life. And and the kind of packages. Uh, monetarily that are on offer and the perks and, and so on. It's just unbeatable, you know? So it's it's an absolute essential, the work that you're doing um, with creating this platform and, and honestly giving vegan companies and plant conscious organizations an opportunity to have access to the talent and also giving the talent an opportunity to know that there are alternatives, um, that they just to be employable and to earn a decent living, they don't need to sacrifice their values. This is so, so needed. Thank you so much, Samantha. We're, you know, almost to time, but um, I, I also wanted to sort of talk about, um, you know, your journey specifically as a nonprofit entrepreneur. You know, you mentioned that you've been always entrepreneurial, you get excited and you've put your heart and soul, blood, sweat and tears into you know, Plant Futures Initiative, but it's gotta be hard. It's gotta be challenging. And especially with the scale up that you've achieved in a relatively short period of time, and especially in a challenging time with the global pandemic going on and mutating and evolving. Let's talk to us about that in the last few minutes. Yeah, it's been an incredible, incredible learning experience for me. I mean, I learned so much every day because I've never started a nonprofit. I've never started an organization before. So every day it's it's challenging for me. It's, it is a lot of work. I love it. I joke that I don't work nine to five. I work nine to nine a lot of the time, but I love it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just so deeply aligned with um, my my values, my vision of the world, my vision of food systems. I mean, I get to wake up every day to do a job that is so deeply aligned with everything that I believe in. And it's not something I take for granted or that I take lightly because I realize that a lot of people will never have the opportunity in their life. So I'm just super, super grateful for the work that I get to do this every day. And although it hasn't been easy, I mean, there have been a lot of challenges Fundraising for one, uh, raising money, especially as a female founder, it's a lot, a lot harder than it is for men. When you see how much money goes to female founders compared mm -hmm. to men, it's it's nothing. I and mean, we have to work so much harder to prove ourselves. And um, that's been very challenging. It can be very frustrating to even talking to climate foundations that are not making connecting the dots between diet and climate change. The amount of conversations I've had at foundations, assuming that they would be investing in this kind of work, no, nothing. I mean, they're just, they're not making that connection. So a lot of it is even just educating people and bring awareness because a lot of the world is still not very aligned with this vision or not thinking about this. I mean, I think it's still in a very nascent stage, even though sometimes it feels like everyone knows about this and is talking about it. It's still very new. And I think there's still a lot of education still needs to happen around these topics. Um, universities are very difficult to work with sometimes. They're not fully aligned with the vision. But I think those difficult moments are the most important ones for me to keep pushing forward and to remind myself why I'm doing the work and the importance of this work. And especially when I hear from students whose lives have been impacted by this work, yeah. that's really the motivation I need every day to keep going. And more than anything, when I'm around animals, that's really the most important thing for me. I mean, when I see animals and I remember what's happening to them in food systems, there's I don't need anything else to keep me pushing forward to do this work. And um, at the end of the day, I'm I'm just super grateful for it, even though it's challenging and it has consumed a lot of my life in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, that is the nature of calling. 
you've actually discovered your purpose and and calling that a you know a lot of people on on the uh, you know on the planet um, just would die to know what it really is and probably never even ever figure out. Um, but you have, and and you're creating the future for so many different you know students for and and it's a it's quite a journey for the collaborators as well who are working with you, especially universities, because you're um, challenging them to take stock of you know where the future needs to go, and and how the present day systems aren't geared for it necessarily. Um, it's just. Awesome. Every single time we catch up, uh, Sam, it's, I learn so many new things about not just the work that you're doing, but also about your journey as an entrepreneur, as a female entrepreneur, as someone with, you know, uh, Mexican heritage uh, and, and someone who understands, you know, how uh, the forces and both the seen and the unseen forces of colonization of our past are impacting not just our present, but you're determined to change the future. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and I'm sure our viewers enjoyed listening to your story. Thank you so much for having me and also for the amazing work that you're doing. I'm super inspired by work and yours and everything you've done and excited to partner with you in the spring. Super looking forward to that. Thank you so much. And until we return next month with yet another amazing guest, thank you so much for watching. You're watching Divinity Connecting the Dots. Mm -hmm.